This is Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Mike Lynch. And I'm Michael Barr. And this is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast, where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. And I'm really excited about this conversation today because we're talking about the evolution of sports and business through the lens of America's pastime right at the mid-season break. There's no one better to take us through that history, the really important history of the integration of baseball. Just a fascinating time. We're joined by Luke Eplin. He's the author of Our Team, the epic story of four men and the World Series that changed baseball. Luke, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, first of all, congratulations on the book. It really is amazing. And, you know, you read the introduction to this. And for anybody who's followed baseball, you know, these names jump out at you. You know, the Cleveland Indians, I mean, are a storied franchise for so many ways. Take us back to this idea sort of germinating into a book. Well, I was interested always in, in, a, in a character named Bill Zach. He was an owner of various teams, the Cleveland Indians, the St. Louis Browns, and the Chicago White Sox. And I think that he is, more importantly, the inventor of the modern stadium experience. He is somebody who was one of the first people to really think about ways to combine sort of entertaining sideshows with competitive play on the field. And so he was shooting off fireworks, giving away sort of wild promotional things to fans, doing staging sort of quiz shows and races and weddings and all these sorts of things on the field that we now take for granted whenever we go to a baseball game. Um, but more importantly, he was also somebody who, along with Branch Rickey in the late 1940s, was uh, interested in integrating the, the national pastime. And so he integrated the Cleveland Indians, of which he was the owner, uh, mere weeks after Ricky had integrated the Dodgers. And I was kind of looking at these people that came together on the Indians, Bill Zach, Larry Doby, Satchel Page, Bob Feller, big Hall of Fame names, and thinking about how these four people really shaped the modern game and formed sort of an alternate integration story than the one that we normally hear about Jackie Robinson and Branch Rickey. I want to go more into that because, yes, everybody has heard the name Jackie Robinson, but uh, many casual baseball fans have not heard the name Larry Doby, the second black player in the majors. And he was a soft-spoken guy, uh, according to what you say mm-hmm. in the book. That uh, And his first year uh, wasn't the greatest, but then he got it going. Can you talk more about Larry Doby? Yeah, Larry Doby is kind of the answer to a trivia question to a lot of people. He is the second black player in Major League Baseball in the 20th century. But I think that his journey is sort of equally as meaningful and significant as Jackie Robinson's, and more importantly, it's very different than Robinson. Robinson comes into Major League Baseball after having spent a year in the minor leagues. He had time to acclimate, to sort of adjust himself to these all-white spaces, and his teammates also had time to sort of wrap their minds around integration that was happening. Robinson was 28 years old. He was also nationally known from having been a college football star. Larry Doby was much younger at age 23. He did not get the sort of opportunity to spend time in the minors. When Bill Beck signed him, 
Uh, Larry Doby played one final game for his team in the Negro Leagues, boarded a train, and the very next afternoon, he was on the Cleveland Indians. He went literally overnight from the Negro Leagues to the Major Leagues, the first player to have done so. And he really struggled in that transition. He did not uh, perform well in 1947. He barely got any at-bats, and he batted below 200. He really looked like kind of a failure. But then in 1948, he had this miraculous turnaround where he bats over 300 and is really the catalyst and the spark plug that gets the Indians into the World Series. They really, he really sort of demonstrated to Major League owners that if you have patience and if you desegregate your roster and allow a black player to find his footing on these, these teams, the rewards can be immense. What was the economic and social climate in Cleveland in 1948, and was that city ready to embrace integration on a Major League Baseball team? Well, Bill Zeck certainly had his doubts whenever he was thinking about integrating the Indians. He thought that Brooklyn, which had a more sort of multi-ethnic character to it, was the ideal place for integration to play out, first of all. He thought that Cleveland, which uh, was not as sort of multi-ethnic, was, was perhaps one that needed to wait for this experiment to play out. But he was kind of wrong on that count. Cleveland, by mid-century, had sort of African-American residents that had gained footings in their industrial base through the war, and they used that sort of uh, footing to fight for better rights, to be able to uh, bring up issues of workplace, workplace discrimination, to be able to talk about sort of segregation and its lingering effects. And so there were city council meetings that were, uh, that were brought up to address these issues. Um, there, were, there were committees formed to figure out how to ease uh, discrimination and segregation and all these sorts of things. So much so that by 1950, Ebony Magazine declared Cleveland to be the most progressive city in the United States on race relations. Um, so by the time the Indians integrate in 1947, um, the city is, is primed for that. The, 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 they have a thriving African-American community, and you also have to remember that the football team, the Cleveland Browns, had also integrated uh, earlier that, that year, and uh, they had few ill effects from that. So Cleveland was really at the forefront of the uh, integration process in sports. And tell us more about Vec in, in terms of his his character, his motivations, all of that as a business person. I, I feel like we, in some ways, he feels more like a an owner in 2021 <laughs> in some ways, you know, that yeah. we he's not what we would necessarily or, or normally or historically associate with an owner of that vintage. Tell us about that. Yeah, Bill's that kind of his his reputation. I feel like is is not what it should be. People think of him as more of a P.T. Barnum character, yeah. shooting off fireworks, sending little people to the plate, doing these wild stunts that everybody sort of now remembers him for. But he was doing these things for a reason. He sort of thought that owners at that time really just catered solely to people that were big fans of the game. They didn't do a lot to sort of drive interest in their sport and bring out people that were either casual fans or not yet fans at all. And so he really thought that there was this whole sort of uh, swath of people that could be sort of induced to come to the ball game if only the owners gave them reason to. And so he 
put on sort of shows for these fans. He made them feel like if they didn't come to the game, they might be missing out on something extremely fun. And then once they were there, they could sort of watch the game and be like, you know what, I actually enjoy this. And uh, he was also catering to families. He put in nurseries at uh, the Cleveland Stadium, and he was catering to women. He was a big proponent of ladies' days. Mm. Um, And so he drove attendance at Cleveland to not only the highest point ever in the city, but also the highest point in Major League Baseball history. In 1948, the Indians shattered the attendance record in a city that is about one-sixth the size of New York City. So the results kind of speak for themselves. Beck also believed that... um, that that integration would, would not necessarily hurt attendance at all. He yeah. thought that for every sort of white fan that decides not to go because they're uncomfortable with the idea, he would gain uh, a member of the black community in, in Cleveland. And he's proven right. The attendance did not dip after integration. That brings up an important point. And you stated about the importance of examining racial injustice through the lens of sports. Can you express why these stories are very poignant and why they need to be heard. Well, I think that uh, in today's climate, you often hear the sentiment that people want to get politics out of sports, that people should just stick to the game, that uh, sports have become too politicized, things like this. And I think that by telling stories like this one about the 19. 19- 40s and maybe an integration story that not everyone has heard before. You see that sports have always been politicized and that what Vec was doing was uh, was couched in very political terms at the time. This is not a new complaint that was going on. And you can see the way that that Vec himself leaned into it. He joined the NAACP. He was a very vocal advocate for um, for desegregation, not only in sports, but in housing and other sorts of issues. And then you can see the way that Larry Doby and Central Page became sort of spokespeople uh, for uh, uh, black athletes and things like that. So it's uh, it's it's a way of sort of reminding us that these issues that that, that we're talking about today have very long tales in history. Did people around Major League Baseball think it was just another Vex stunt when he signed Satchel Paige, uh, who allegedly was 41 years old at the time? He could have been 51, for all any, anyone knows. Absolutely. Bill Vec had known Satchel Paige since the sort of early 1930s. Vec had grown up in Chicago. He knew a lot about the Negro Leagues at the time by attending games there. He had always had a sort of dream of bringing Satchel Paige into the majors. He didn't do so immediately after buying the Indians because he did do all of these other sorts of stunts with uh, putting clowns in the coaching boxes and fireworks and all that. So he was worried that if he brought Satchel Paige first onto the Indians, that people would really think, oh, well, this is just a stunt. This is not serious. But Vec knew that Page had more to him. And so he did kind of slow walk it a little bit. In 1948, uh, the Indians were sort of neck and neck with the Red Sox and the Yankees. And so by midseason, Vec realized that they needed more pitching. And since free agency wasn't really a thing back then and, and, and pitchers were hard to find, he looked to the Negro Leagues and realized that Satchel Page was the man. And even though he got a lot of guff from it, from the sporting news and other major publications at the time, Satchel Page won six games in July and August and really carried the Indians through a stretch of the season that otherwise might have sunk them. So, Luke, 
you know, fast forward back to today where, you know, baseball and, and sport overall, you know, continues to, as Michael Barr said a few minutes ago, wrestle with a, a lot of these issues. You know, when when you think about how far baseball has come or not come uh, candidly in, in wrestling with this, you know, there is some recognition in the record books now, you know, Satchel Page will now be much more included for the for the excellence that he demonstrated on the field, not just in, you know, for the Indians, but for his prior prowess. Where are we in that process, do you think, you know, here in 2021? Well, it certainly is a sport that has dipped in popularity among uh, black audiences, and uh, you see the, the, the dip also among black players in the sport. Um, and I think the, re- the reasons for that are myriad. I think that you could look at someone like Larry Doby, who in high school was a four, uh, four-letter athlete. Some people thought that baseball wasn't even Doby's best sport. Yeah. He got a scholarship to play basketball in college at one of the top programs. And I had talked to one of his old teammates who's in his 90s, and he said that Doby was doing things on the basketball court that nobody had ever seen. People were shooting set shots then, and Doby was flying through the air like Elgin Baylor. He was so far ahead of his time. And it just kind of leads you to believe that if Doby were around now, he probably would have chosen basketball yeah. then as his sport. But there wasn't a lot of future in that for players because the leagues were so uh, so uh, nascent at the time, and you couldn't make as good of a living. So there are certainly more options now, and baseball hasn't done a good job uh, for uh, competing for these sorts of athletes, and they also haven't done a good job of, of sort of outreach at certain points. But... Uh, who knows? I mean, these things could be cyclical. I know that base, Major League Baseball is now investing a lot in, in sort of programs that are going to be aimed toward minority communities in the United States. Um, they're investing a lot of money. So it's my hope that it, it picks back up at some point. we got to talk about Bob Feller, just phenomenal pitcher. And, and sadly, he just died about a year ago. God rest his soul. Uh, I, I think Feller, probably as a pitcher, Probably people saw Feller and they thought, oh, my goodness, what is this? God made a pitcher, and here it is right here. Can you talk about Bob Feller? Yeah, Bob Feller probably has the greatest athlete origin story ever. I mean, you can look across sports. He was somebody who grew up at a, in a farm in central Iowa. His dad sensed a rare ability in him from a very early age, so he cleared off a portion of their farmland and built him a baseball diamond right there. It is essentially the original field of dreams. Um, Feller makes the Indians at the age of 17. He, in his very first start ever in the majors, ties the American League record in strikeouts, and then four strikeouts. Four starts later, he ties the major league record in strikeouts. He is such a phenom that his high school graduation the next year is broadcast live on NBC radio from coast to coast. He, he goes on to set numerous records before even the age of 20. But I think the thing that, and this ties into the theme of the podcast, I think that the thing that really people I wanted to get from this book is just what an incredible businessman Feller was. He was somebody that recognized the value of his name. He recognized the value of the narrative of the young boy coming from the cornfields into the major leagues, and he cashed in on it repeatedly throughout his life. He became the most paid player in baseball history. He beat Babe Ruth 
single season record of most money earned by an athlete in a season. He was somebody who really knew how to capitalize on his fame. He had a radio show. He had a syndicated column. He endorsed whatever he could, and he did massive barnstorming tours with Satchel Paige, who was also an incredible businessman and entrepreneur, somebody who really built himself up during a time when the Negro Leagues were in collapse into a one-man franchise that was making as much money as any white superstar in Major League Baseball. And Feller and Page came together during the offseason on these barnstorming tours and dueled against each other and drew such an amount of fans that it lined their pockets to a tremendous extent. These two men were really the forerunners of the athlete as brand and the athlete as businessman. And so, if I may, Luke, why? What what inspired them to do that? Because that was not the that was not how people did things back back then in many ways. No, it wasn't. I mean, there's certainly precedence to some of these things. Babe Ruth and sure. Dizzy Dean, to a certain extent, were were pretty good businessmen. Um, you know, I think that Feller, because he came from a farming background, people sort of interpreted him as kind of a bucolic, simple uh. sort of person, almost out of the 18th century or whatever. But, like, he wasn't. His dad was a tremendous businessman who had one of the first tractors in Iowa. He built, a, he bought a lot of land during the Depression when other farmers were losing it. He was a cold-hearted businessman, and I think he passed it along to his son. Satchel Page grew up in extreme poverty in Mobile, Alabama and had to work at a uh, train station when he was young. He got his name Satchel because he would bring a rope and a long stick to the train station and just kind of put passengers' bags over the stick so he'd carry more of them at a time. People said that he carried so many satchels, all you could see was satchels. And so that's how he got his name. So the, the sort of DNA of both of these people is in business. And they recognize in each other that they were the best sort of black and white mm. pitchers of that time. And if they sort of faced off against each other in these off-season barnstorming contests, they could draw as many white fans as they could black, and that would swell the ticket coppers and thus swell their pockets. And so they they sort of formed this financial relationship amongst themselves before integration that was a partnership of, you know, like-minded business people. So Luke, just to follow up on that, was Feller a welcoming teammate when Page actually joined the Indians? Feller and Page had a complicated personal relationship. In 1946, Bob Feller organized a barnstorming tour that spanned the country. He used airplanes, they played in stadiums, and he made more than $80,000 on that tour, which was a tremendous sum of money back then. Satchel Page was the sort of partner in this for the opposing team, the only other pitcher that really, uh, the only other player that got billing for this barnstorming tour. But by the end, Page felt that Feller was not keeping up his end of the bargain, and he sued Bob Feller in court. And I think he ended up winning a couple thousand dollars from Feller for not paying him out as much as they did. So I wouldn't say these two men were buddy-buddy, but they... I think that they certainly respected each other and appreciated their abilities. Um, Bob Feller in the late 40s was so involved in his own business ventures and all that sort of thing that Larry Doby would later say that it wasn't that Feller was necessarily opposed integration or cold or anything like that. He was just in his own world. He was such a superstar that he didn't really have time to, to sort of bother with not only, you know, the the entrance of, of players from the Negro Leagues onto his team, but really his other teammates. He was just kind of uh, in, in a different plane. 
So, Luke, we're talking about this very progressive moment in the history of the Cleveland franchise. And yet here we are, and the team is under fire, many would say quite rightly, for its name. And uh, at a time when the Washington football team is in the process of changing its name, uh, what happens in the interim? And and tell us how you think this will go uh, for, for the Cleveland Indians. Well, Bill Zach was somebody who... Um, very much played up the Native American imagery of of the Indians, and you saw this a lot in the times uh, in the archives of the times, where there would be grossly offensive stereotypes and caricatures of Native Americans using to describe the Indians. And um, I, I personally think it's it's long overdue to, to to think about these 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 issues around Native American mascots. And I think to the Indians' credits. They're, they're finally recognizing that, and they are changing the name. And from what I understand, it will it will happen in the next year or two. I know that some fans are are, are very opposed to it, but as as has happened in sort of college athletics, whenever they changed uh, a lot of these names and mascots, um, there'll be a sort of rage period followed by a long cool down. So I'm hoping that that's what happens with the Indians. I have to bring something up about Bob Feller, and I'm speaking as Old Man Barr and a Detroit Tigers fan, and when I was a little kid in school, we learned <sighs> about, about Bob Feller. He was the starting pitcher against the Detroit Tigers. I want to say it was 1938 or something. And our Hank Greenberg, he was two home runs away of Babe Ruth's then single-season record of 60 home runs, and then Feller just messed the whole thing up because he recorded 16 strikeouts. Uh, it, it's, in fact, he almost set the, the nine-inning uh, MLB strikeout record. That's how great uh, this guy was. Yeah, well, your memory is, is right on but a little off. Actually, Bob Feller did set the, the strikeout record that day. He had 18, and uh, that was the last game of the season where he did shut out the Tigers, but he ended up losing that game um, despite his 18 strikeouts because there was a pitcher named Floyd Giebel of the or I believe that was, yeah, of the of the Tigers that, that ended up beating him uh, in a very close game, but yeah, I mean, he was at a time whenever the strikeout rate wasn't nearly as high as it is now in Major League Baseball. Bob Feller was recording extraordinary strikeout numbers. I mean, he was throwing so hard that people, they say, were just kind of scared to come to the plate because he also was slightly wild. And so you couldn't you couldn't sort of rest and just wait for the fastball. You didn't know where the ball was going to go. I, I imagine he must have been one of the most terrifying pitchers that any of these batters had ever seen. Does the city of Cleveland appreciate uh, what went on when this 1948 team, or is it just, hey, the last time the Indians won was 1948? This is just an incredible story. I'm, I'm just completely, completely grabbed by it. Yeah, I, I mean, the fact that it was the last time that the Indians won the World Series keeps it more sort of front and center in terms of Indian fandom. Um, it might have been slightly more diluted if they'd won in the 90s or even in 2016 when they were in the World Series. But it certainly is something that... that Indian fans remember very fondly. I mean, it was a time whenever, as I think I put it in the book, sort of athletic stardom, uh, civic strength, and sort of uh, 
people coming back from the war and just wanting to, to, to let loose really converged. Cleveland was at the height of its powers. It had nearly a million people um, in, within its borders. Uh, the, the industrial base was still strong and hadn't been hollowed out yet. And people that had spent years you know, suffering from the Depression and then the war really looked to the Indians as sort of a way of establishing normalcy and a way of, um, a way of sort of letting out pent-up feelings that they'd been keeping in for so long. I mean, it became sort of a frenzy in, in Cleveland. There was just, uh, you'd see sort of 80,000 people in Municipal Stadium, this giant place on Lake Erie right there. And yeah, it was, uh, it, 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 it was a nationwide sensation that, uh, that is still remembered today. Well, it's an incredible book, an incredible tale, and it's amazing when someone can identify something that happened historically that has such resonance and relevance today. So congratulations on the book. Luke Eplin is the author of Our Team, the epic story of four men and the World Series that changed baseball. Check it out. It's a terrific read, as Lynchy just said. Uh, just incredibly compelling, and uh, it's so many echoes through society and sports and a reminder, as Luke said earlier in the conversation, of the power that sports has economically and, and socially. We're reminded of that a lot, but uh, it's important to remember that there's a long, long legacy and, and an important legacy uh, to explore. So, Luke, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you. This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast. I'm Michael Barr, along with Mike Lynch and Jason Kelly. And we're here each and every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday exploring the world of money and sports. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio around the world and online wherever you get your podcasts.